Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Bestseller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with Leo Batari. He is the author of Peer Novation, what peer advisory groups can teach us about building high-performing teams. Leo, it's great to see you again. Uh, it's so great to be here with you on the show again. Great to see you, Taryn. Likewise, we should tell our viewers you were here for your last book, which was called What Anyone Can Do. And that was about peer groups as well, if I remember correctly. Yeah, definitely connected. Each of them stands alone, but I would certainly love it, of course, if people read all three books, right? Um, the, the first book, The Power of Peers, was really written um, to look at how and why peer groups are so effective for CEOs and business leaders. Um, and the reason it was written was I was actually uh, working for Vistage uh, at the time, and Vistage assembles and facilitates peer advisory groups for CEOs and business leaders uh, all around the world. And I was leading a brand refresh at the time, and as I was speaking to CEOs and business leaders and asking them, how do you learn? How do you grow? They would tell me, I read books, I hire coaches, I get consultants, I go to executive development programs at Harvard and Stanford, and no one, at least in an unassisted way, was mentioning peer groups. And I thought, oh my God, these things are so powerful and they're so effective. You know, but people don't even have them as part of their consideration set. So the idea was, let's put a narrative together that really speaks to how and why these peer groups work uh, as well as they do. So that was the, the first book. Um, in 2017, I had a podcast uh, called The Year of the Peer, and I figured it was my venture into podcasting. I could have a have definite beginning and an end, and we could see how that goes. And that was on C-Suite uh, Radio, of course. But I interviewed 50 um really successful people from all different walks of life. And of course, part of the questioning all the time was, okay, did you do this all by yourself? And every one of them would laugh, of course, at the idea that you know they had countless people help them get to where they are. And so I took a lot of the um, you know findings from those interviews and talked about the common thread there, which was, you know, most of these people, it wasn't like they had, you know, superhuman talent or anything like that. Obviously, they were committed to what they were doing, but they basically did what this gentleman, Joe Henderson, wrote about in a book in 1976, where he described, um, you know, really successful people as the people who do the things that anyone can do, that, but most of us never will. And so we talked about that in the book. And I think, you know, talked about the fact that when we surround ourselves with the right people, it can help us do those little things anyone can do far more often. So when you look at the power of peers and why peer groups work so well, and then you look at the power of any individual and what they can do with the help of others, then you start thinking about, well, what can this all mean to high-performing teams for our organizations? So that's where peer innovation comes into play after having now done about 160 or plus workshops uh, throughout the US, UK and Canada uh, with CEO peer groups and cross-functional work teams and really seeing how these principles, these five factors and, uh, that I've identified, um, you know, apply to high-performing teams. Sure. I, just to, to bring up something you mentioned a couple moments ago, Leo, you were saying how initially when you interviewed all these CEOs and leaders and you're saying, you know, how did you get to where you are? And they were talking about, you know, just coaching and, and conventions. And you said you were shocked to hear that no one mentioned peers. 
So how did you come upon it? How did it, you know what I mean? Where, when did you have that aha moment of peers as such an important part of the equation? Well, it began in graduate school, um, certainly at Seton Hall University. I went to get my master's degree um, a little later in life. It was between 2006 and 2008, and we were part of a cohort, and we all learned together. And this whole idea of kind of group learning, I thought, was was really amazing, given my experience, um, you know, in undergraduate school or in high school or anything else where, you know, collaborative learning would have been cheating, you know, back then. But now all of a sudden, hey, we get to learn from one another and we have all these people that, you know, were mid to senior level executives, all pretty accomplished. And there was a lot to share and a lot to learn from one another. And the professors in the program recognized that. And they created an environment we probably, you know, I think any one of us would say we learned most from one another, second from the material and third from the professors themselves, which is exactly how they set it up. And I thought it was brilliant. And it really gave me an interest um, in peer groups for business leaders. It was one of the motivators for wanting to become part of the uh, team at, at Vistage, which I joined and was there from 2010 to 2016. And I really saw it in action. And I saw the difference that peer groups made in people's lives. And not just the you know CEOs, but all their key executives, families, and communities, you name it. And uh, I was just um, you know blown away by how effective they are. And so here we are. Yeah, so let's, here we are. <laughs> let's talk <laughs> about uh, some of the those five factors that you mentioned, because you have something, you know, you refer to the, the five factors, I want to get it right, five factors common to high performing teams. And the book lays them out. Um, you know, one that stuck out, stuck out to me rather um, was psychological safety. I wasn't expecting that um, because I read it. That was a little daunting. I was like, whoa, <laughs> what, what do you, what, to what is that referring, Leo? So I'll, I'll give the five factors quick, and then I'll jump into a little deeper explanation of psych the psychological safety piece. But the, the five factors, which actually drive what we call the learning achieving cycle, right? Where we come together, we learn better when we learn together. And when we share our learning and try it out and we gain success from it, we want to do more of it, right? The five factors basically say that that type of learning doesn't happen by just putting a bunch of people in a room and hoping for the best. So the five factors become having the right people on your team. Uh, it's about psychological safety. It's about productivity. Um, uh, fourth would be accountability. And fifth is about leadership. Um, so getting to psychological safety, which has really come, you know, the term has been around since the mid 1960s when, you know, uh, Warren Bennis and Edgar Schein, you know, wrote about it. And, um, you know, Amy Edmondson, of course, has been a real champion of it at Harvard Business School. But it's really come to to light in a much bigger way because it was such a important finding from Google's um, Aristotle project where they looked at great teams and what was important and valuable to great teams. So this idea of psychological safety, making sure that, you know what, if we have these people in these positions and we work so hard to hire the right, smart, really great people, that we need to allow them to have the ability to be able to speak up and speak out and take risks and do so without fear of consequences that, you know, just completely, you know, um, make their job impossible. Um, so we want to try to make sure that people have a high degree of psychological safety. And when we do, that's how we can get the most out of everyone. C-Suite Radio. 
Right. And are these five factors, Leo, are these geared towards the leader of the group, the, the C-suite? You know, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, who is this book for? Who are these five factors targeted at, I guess? The book is certainly for everyone because, um, you know, whether you're a leader of the team or a leader in your team, you know, and how to be a really great, great team member. Um, you know, I think the book is really valuable and relevant there. But, you know, it, it's kind of interesting when we start thinking about who the right people are. What does what does that look like? And it's not the same for every team. You know, it, it's certainly not. Um, I think when I speak to CEO groups and I talk to them about the fact that, you know, I owned my own company and I've run some subsidiaries and they can all identify and relate to this idea that, okay, I got this great resume interviewed the candidate, the team interviewed the candidate, amazing, we hire them and three months later, we're wondering why isn't this working? Why is this so bad? Why is this not? And, you know, in, in many cases, it's because we're the ones that just made the wrong pick. We should know our organization well enough to know who's really going to thrive and be successful in this organization versus someone who um, may not work as well. They could go on and usually do elsewhere and have a great career. But we need to really have an understanding of what works for our organization. It's why these five factors serve as a framework, not a prescription. So no matter what kind of company you have or what you're doing, you can look at each of these factors. And I think you can get all the team members to have conversations which allow for creating a clear set of expectations of, of, of one another, of everyone on the team and what that looks like. And I think once you do that, you're taking a really powerful step toward what a team can accomplish. So that said, um, again, you're reading my mind here, Leo, because I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, what you just said, you know, the interview goes great, uh, the, the team likes them, and then it's not working out. So how do you, you know, what are you what are you saying in the book? What 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 did what do you have to how do you write the ship? How do you find the right people to avoid that situation? And, and also, how do you make it universal? How do you write a book that applies to all industries? Yeah. Well, I think the framework piece of it is how you write it for and to make it relevant for everyone, for sure. I think identifying what truly, truly works in your culture can take time. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, Gino Ariyama, the coach of University of Connecticut women's basketball team, um, basically uh, about 10 years in, recognized that um, being a good teammate was probably, in addition to obviously having the talent and the competitiveness and other such things that you need to be able to be good enough to make that team. But when it comes to really being a successful contributor, um, having someone who has the mindset where they would be a great teammate um, became really paramount. And one of the ways that um, they determined that was they would watch a kid play high school basketball. And the kid, um, when she was put on the bench for a couple of minutes, they said there's one of two kinds of kids. One kid who throws the towel over her head and just waits to get called back on the floor. And the other one is the one who's on the edge of her seat, yelling out encouragement and instructions or whatever, and remaining in that game and really being there for the other players. He said that second player that I just described, that great teammate is rarer than you think. Um, because it's just kind of how we're brought up in all the, our individual stats and our numbers and all that kind of stuff. So the idea of having a kid who really cares about their teammates uh, really matters. And I think that became part of the secret sauce um, for Connecticut. You know, you look at that's probably 
men or women, the most dominant program in all of college sports. And to watch that culture and to watch what they do and how they do it, I think there's a lot of instructive information there for companies. And I think we should work equally hard at A, coming up with what that it factor is in terms of what creates success in our company. How do we identify it and assess for it? And then do we have the discipline to say no to a really great candidate who doesn't chin the bar on that thing that we know is essential and saying, we're going to do them a favor and let them, they're great, but they're going to be greater elsewhere. <laughs> right. So how, how does a CEO or a leader um, put that into practice uh, in, in an office type setting, making sure we're hiring that, that, you know, that, that member who's supporting the team is about we, not I. Is it any, any quick nuggets of suggestion? How do you, when you're interviewing something, just like in this portal via Zoom, how do I test and see if the interviewee is someone who's going to be, like you said, cheering on the sidelines when they're put on the bench versus sitting there with a towel over their head and, and not engaged? Yeah, I think whatever that it factor is, you've got to figure out, again, like to your point, a way to interview for it, a way to assess for it and all that. I think that becomes, um, you know, it just becomes essential. And one of the ways you can identify what that it factor is, is you can ask some of your own people who've worked at your organization for a long time. You know, I have a PDF that I actually make available at the end of the book for people to take and do this on their own. And they can ask the question, what do you think is the difference between the people who make it in this organization and those who don't? And without getting personal or anything about who left or anything like that, and presumably, right, that the people you have there, they can feel good, yep, to be here, you know, like I, I'm, I am on this team, you know, I've been good enough to make it. And they start talking about, you know, what that looks like. And I think any leader who has done that particular exercise and asked that question, finds it one of the um, biggest learning moments about what it, that difference is. And it's a start. For sure. I mean, I love what you just said. You know, your employees, your current roster, your current team is your greatest asset, right? What you just said, ask them, you why do you think you've been successful? Um, you know, what, what do you think, what do you wish, you know, you would have been asked perhaps if you could have, or what, what do you wish you would, you could have shared, you know, what you would have been prompted for. Um, exactly. I think that's, that's great. And just a lot of, a lot of people aren't thinking, um, you know, in that framework. And, you know, I, I just love, I, I do want to mention the book is full of great quotes, a lot of sports quotes, like, you know, the anecdote you just mentioned at the top of each chapter. Um, one of my, one of my favorite quotes that you have is Phil Jackson. Um, you know, the, the, uh, incredible coach of the bulls, um, the Chicago bulls and, one of his quotes is the strength the strength of the team is each individual member the strength of each member is the team uh which seems obvious but when you put it you know on paper and you see it um it really brings on a whole new dimension so obviously you're a bulls fan i think a phil jackson fan uh, i was curious if you watched the last dance and obviously they they had such an incredible run and everyone says that a lot of it was due to phil jackson's way of coaching um you know based on everything you've written about in your books um do you feel that that's accurate it was it about how he led his team could no other coach have done what he did i guess is the question i'm asking you so a couple things um to set the record straight, I'm a Boston Celtics fan because okay. I grew up, you know, in New England. And right. you know, um, as, as you probably read about, I talked about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and all that. I think if you look at um, Phil Jackson did a masterful job, obviously, coaching the Bulls. But what he also had was the same thing that another thing they talk about with the University of Connecticut's team is they had incredible accountability among the players. 
the culture of accountability among the players to get better and constantly learn and grow and improve. Um, and they set their own standard of excellence. And I think that's where um, Phil Jackson is that person who helps them reach that place and then they help one another make it possible. Um, so, you know, obviously his record speaks for itself in terms of his NBA coaching career. Um, but I think when you look at a lot of great teams, um, they share that in common. Yeah, it's just it's just topical because I like the sports analogies and you know people have had that conversation. Obviously, there was incredible talent with Jordan and Pippen and Rodman and the like. But you, you do have to wonder if there was a different coach, would things have been different? Um, so the last dance gave you a little bit of insight into it. So just curious because it, it is sure. cool here. Uh, well, the book's terrific. Uh, we barely scratched the surface, which is a good thing because the book uh, offers so much more. You talk about things like the difference between groups and teams, um, you know, and specifically how to figure out if this innovation framework can work for your company um so it's really uh insightful and unique uh a fourth book to come leo what do you say um we'll see you know i think what i you know i didn't write the first one with the intent of a second and didn't write the second with the intent of a third so i think um you know there was different circumstances it was all the interviews like i said from the year of the peer podcast that inspired the second book it was the findings and all the data from all of the workshops that i thought was so instructive not only for groups but for high performing teams as well that made this worthwhile so uh, it'll come down to over the next several years, whether you know um, there becomes a real reason to to add uh, to what we've yeah. got here, and we'll we'll um, keep my eyes and ears open. You know, yeah, CBA as they say. Uh, we well, thanks again, Leo. It's great to see you, and uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Thank you so much. And if you'd like more information on the book, just check out our website. It's csweetbookclub.com. That's c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV via Zoom. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.